On today's podcast, I'm super excited to welcome Kevin Finch, founder and executive director of the nonprofit Big Table out of Spokane, Washington. Kevin and I discussed the foundation of Big Table, the nonprofit focused on the largest employer in the entire world, the restaurant industry. We talked about his ministry prior, his family, as well as uh, food writing in and around the Pacific Northwest. Join me and welcome Kevin Finch to the podcast. Kevin Finch of Big Table, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. We've known each other for uh, several years. Uh, goes all the way back, I believe, to the Rockwood Bakery in Spokane. Yep. Um, I can't remember who introduced us, but I'm glad that they did. And uh, I've always been fascinated by uh, your ministry and, you know, nonprofit work. Uh, but t- tell us, uh, you know, what is your background, you know, professionally and ministry and the journey to start Big Table? Do you mind sharing that with us? Not at all. Um, uh, grew up small town, Montana, uh, through high school, went to Seattle Pacific, did an English degree. So in Seattle, um, uh, history minor, uh, took a little Russian, uh, <laughs> and then realized what do you do with those kind of wonderful liberal, liberal arts stuff? Uh, ended up joining, deciding to kind of pursue the family business, which in my family was uh, ministry. I, dad was a pastor, grandmother was a pastor, uncles were pastors, cousins were, it was, it, it was like families that have a lot of doctors or lawyers or plumbers, uh, workers or farmers, whatever. Um, it was just kind of the thing our family did. And uh, unlike some families, where there were a lot of skeletons in the closet, there was a lot of integrity in all of those people. So there wasn't a, there wasn't a disconnect between who those pastors were in public and who I saw them to be. So there was some authenticity. And when I was casting around for what I should do, I uh, ended up as a pastor. Uh, went to Princeton. Uh, my big rebellion was to... Uh, to leave the assemblies of God and become a Presbyterian. So um, <laughs> you're so radical. I'm such a radical guy. Um, but for me, um, spent 15 years serving as a pastor in multiple settings in multiple cities in the Northwest. And um, my where Big Table develops is along the way, I've just always been a guy who loves food. Uh, growing up, it was quantity. Rather than quality, I was like a human vacuum cleaner. Uh, thankfully, at some point along the way, I started paying attention more to how it tasted <laughs> and a little less to how much I was stuffing in my mouth. Um, but in college and grad school, I started collecting restaurant reviews and uh, became the unofficial guy that you would talk to about where do you want to take your girlfriend on a date or families coming to town where you go to eat. And um, when I took the kind of the, the last pastor job that I took and came to Spokane, Washington, um, I just kind of had this reputation preceded me that I was a little obsessed with food. And, um, uh, and that word is significant in that about a year into sp- time in Spokane, the editor of Spokane Quarterly Living, uh, we were having a dinner, have a, a meal together, and she looked across the table and said, weren't you an English major? 
And I go, yeah. And she goes, aren't you obsessed with food? And <laughs> I objected to the word, but uh, said, well, I, I am pretty excited about what I eat. And she, the, her next question was, I just lost my food reviewer. I need someone to write a restaurant review of the Wolf Lodge Inn uh, east of Coeur d'Alene. Could you do that? And I was just there a month ago. Yeah. So that was the spot. And she goes, and I'm just like, so let me get this straight. You're going to pay me to go out to eat. <laughs> and I just have to write 300 words about that. Like, heck yeah, I am all over that. And that uh, initial review then became a regular gig with uh, regional lifestyle magazines, Spokane Quarterly Living. Uh, a year later, the spokesman review that had uh, downsized and eliminated their full-time restaurant critic position came to me and asked if I would freelance for them doing fine dining reviews. And then the weekly paper, The Inlander, also asked me to do some writing. So while I'm serving as a pastor in Spokane, I'm kind of moonlighting uh, at night or on weekends when I have some space as a, as a, a food writer and a restaurant critic. Um, and it's just a fun gig. I mean, I'm getting paid to go out to eat. And for the first time in my life, I can take friends out to eat with me and say, I'm covering the bill because I wasn't covering the bill. <laughs> <laughs> the magazine or the paper was covering the bill. Uh, but where Big Table develops is this um, about five years into writing reviews. And again, Spokane is not. Uh, kind of a first tier or maybe even a second tier food city um it's not a, it hasn't been it's actually quite wonderful now but certainly wasn't a destination place where people would go i'm going there to i'm not it's not like they're flying to new york to try some restaurants or going to san francisco or whatever but i'm having a ball writing about this but as i'm writing about the industry my spidey sense and probably in some ways my pastoral spidey sense, since I think I still am probably the only restaurant critic in the history of restaurant critics whose day job was being a pastor. That's not the normal uh, connection you make. Um, my spidey sense went off to say, it seems like the folks who work in restaurants and by extension, hotel, hospitality folks, seems like there's a higher concentration of need in this industry than I've seen anywhere else. And at that point, I've served as a pastor in multiple cities, in multiple large congregations. So I felt like I had a unique perspective on the whole community and where the needs might be. And restaurants just seemed completely different. Uh, and so I started poking around, and this is about spring of 2006, um, poking around and just looking at the statistics. and. Um, what I discovered in researching it is it wasn't as bad as I thought. It was way, way worse. Highest rates of drug and alcohol abuse, uh, poverty levels double that of the next closest industry, um, stress levels off the chart, lack of safety net. Just about on any measure you looked at for vulnerability, the restaurant and hospitality industry was the worst. Um, so, so if I could jump in real fast. Sure. Um, I mean, I was a I was a restaurant server uh, in college, uh, and it was just that it was a uh, a gig to uh, you know keep money in my pocket, cover a couple of small bills that I had as I was going through school, 
like you, also an English major, uh, <laughs> but at the University of Washington. Um, but yep. uh, and, and anyway, the the job of being a server, I always saw it as a as kind of a gap filler. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, put some cash in your pocket. In fact, one funny story. Right around the time I think I met you, I was uh, working uh, a second job at O'Doherty's Irish Pub. Right, I remember that. Spokane. Yeah. And uh, Shannon, he's the brother of Tim who founded the restaurant. Uh, he's Shannon O'Doherty. And he said to me, he said, Mike, and of course, I'm in my 30s and most of the servers are young and they're mostly female. And he said, right. once one of these college girls get 50 bucks in their pocket, they'll want to go to the lake. Uh, so I can't promise you any shifts this summer, but if you put your name and phone number on the board, you'll have more work than you'll know what to do with. And that's exactly <laughs> what it was for me is that it was enough money. I had three small sons and, uh, it put, you know, a few more groceries in the, you know, in the, in the pantry or whatever. And I think I had one kid still in diapers. Uh, so I bought a couple extra right. diapers, uh, because my primary job, um, unlike you as a pastor, I was, uh, you know, in the real estate world, I'm a mortgage lender. And so uh, 2008 was a tough time to be a mortgage lender. Right. And so I, I had to yeah. have the second job. And so I always thought restaurant work was like that, was to fill in a gap, cover some time until you get your real job, uh, right. quote unquote. But what, what you're telling me or what I'm picking up here is that the way you are we're seeing it is that there's a whole nother layer, uh, yep. kind of an underbelly, if you will, uh, for no pun intended, uh, mm-hmm. in the restaurant industry where... Um, there's some there's some real issues. This is not just uh, get 50 bucks in my pocket so I can head out to the lake kind yeah. of stuff. And certainly there are folks that while they're in college or while they're working, it's it's a great way to pick up some money and it's flexible and there's um, there's some things to commend it to. But when you start looking at it as an industry, it really is the hardest, toughest spot. It's kind of the low rung on the totem or low rung on the ladder, the employment ladder, and um, partly for good reason. Anyone willing to work can get a job in the industry. Um, certainly, that's true today, given the labor shortages. But it's always been true to some extent. And quite frankly, if you got fired at O'Doherty's, <laughs> um, one day you could get a job down the street at Anthony's or something uh, by the end of the week. So for folks who are living right on the edge, um, kind of hand to mouth, it's it's one of the only places you can kind of keep your head above water. And it's got the if you're a single mom, you can trade shifts. Um, uh, if 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 you got fifty bucks in your wallet, you're, you're going to the lake. Mike can pick up that shift for you, and <laughs> exactly. you've got a job. So there there's some wonderful things about the industry. But from a, the standpoint of just kind of health and survival, there's a lot of danger to get stuck there or to go, this is what I love doing, but I just can't make it doing this. Um, so. Well, you know, I, it's, a, it's a really good point. And um, I don't know if you remember the line from The Godfather Part 3 where uh, Michael Corleone says, uh, you know, I tried to get out of it. He's trying to make all of his family business legitimate. And then he has a very dramatic, you know, statement. He says, but it sucks me back in. Right. Right. And the food, the restaurant industry is like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, My first gig at uh, Red Robin uh, in Redmond when I was in college as a, uh, as a host, you know, the guy told me, he said, you know, it's, it's sometimes it can be hard to get into the industry, but once you're in it, you'll always have work. You can, like you said, you get fired on Tuesday and pick up shifts on Friday. 
and nobody really cares because they just want to know that you know what you're doing enough right. to either you know serve a couple of tables or work the fry line you know in the back of the you know the back of the house or something else yeah so it's uh, almost uh, like a vortex uh, for probably for some and and for folks who are vulnerable or struggling in life yeah you can still you can still pull this off until you can't um gordy uh uh and i'm zoning on gordy's last name he had the restaurant gordy szechuan up on the south hill oh yeah that's a good restaurant he um he kind of cut his teeth in a kitchen down in santa cruz uh that was famous for its Sichuan cuisine and his job is kind of the sous chef on friday was to call around to their kitchen staff and figure out how many of them could come into work and then go down to the jail and bail out as many more of his guys as he needed to fill the shift that night um it was that was just his op- standard operating procedure wow. <laughs> for the weekend uh, so it um it, it's a tough industry um and for me uh coming from kind of the fairly sanitized church world, uh, I got exposed to this and, um, and then started feeling guilty. So it wasn't, I need to start something. I need to fix this. It was, I just was feeling guilty that I was writing about food, having all the fun. And these folks are really struggling. So my thought, and again, this is mid 2006 is I'll just give a little bit of money of what I make as a food critic, which wasn't much, um, to whatever organization is helping folks in the industry. Um, and I assumed there'd be something in Spokane, but I started poking around, couldn't find anything. Then I thought, well, there's gotta be something in Washington state somewhere. So probably something in Seattle, nothing in Washington state that I could find, um, looked at the West coast and then just kept expanding that search. Um, till I was looking at the entire country and at, in 2006, in the nation, there were a million and a half nonprofits registered with the IRS. Not a single one in the nation was caring for essentially the largest industry in the nation with the highest concentration of need. That's unbelievable. It was this kind of emperor's new clothes moment for me of how can this be? This is impossible. And uh, interesting side note, uh, a woman who runs a foundation in Seattle uh popped through town and uh she had babysat our kids years earlier so she just stopped by and we're talking and because she was in philanthropy and that i shared that statistic with her and she just looked at me and laughed she said kevin if i had a nickel for every time someone came to me and said here's a need no one's doing this (laughs) i'd be rich a second time over and i said to her, well, Dorothy, I'd love it if, if you could figure out who's doing this because you have a different database to look at or something. That means I'm off the hook. I don't need to do anything. So please let me know. A week later, she calls back and says, I don't believe it. You're right. Literally no one in the country is caring for the largest industry in the country with the highest concentration of need. Um, for me, um, to this day, I think the reason for that is the most important part of the uh, a uniform of someone working at whether they're working, you're working at Doherty's or Red Robin or wherever you're at, is actually not 
your outfit, it's the smile on your face. And so anyone that works in this industry that keeps their job, they're going to have a smile on their face when they're interacting with people. So if you don't work in the industry, you walk into a restaurant, you walk into a hotel, a resort, by definition, the people that you're interacting with have jobs. You know that. And they got a smile on their face. They're asking you how you're doing. They're asking you how your day's going. They're asking you if you want your regular, you know, hey, don't you take your uh, iced tea unsweetened? Can I get that for you right now? Um, unless you're looking for it, you're going to miss the fact that this is the industry with the highest concentration of need because of that smile. And for six years, for five, six years, that's all I saw, even though I was writing about the industry. But once I realized that that wasn't the true story behind the kitchen doors, um, I couldn't unsee it. Uh, it's kind of like once you see it, you can't, can't, can't not it. see it. Right. So, so the genesis of the vision for Big Table uh, rooted in your love for food, dining mm -hmm. out, writing about food, writing about restaurants, writing about the community. You uh, see this big need. Uh, you yeah. do some research and realize that uh, there's nobody else really caring for these people. And so so Big Table is founded out of that sort of the thought mm -hmm. process and conversation. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. And, um, and the funny part about it was um, anytime anyone in the, re and part of the kind of structure of Big Table was based on this fact. Anytime anyone in the industry found out it was a restaurant critic or a food writer, they all wanted to talk to me. They were intrigued. And I didn't broadcast that widely, but it inevitably kind of seeps out. So people would be saying, oh, man, tell me about, you know, what about that new place that just opened down the street? Or I hear I hear they're brewing their own beer. Or <laughs> what's um, what's going on at, at that Japanese place? Do you like that? You know, those kinds of conversations where you just kind of, it's, it's like magnetic. Other folks over here and the person... Busing, the next table stops busing and comes over and says, oh, yeah, I heard about that breakfast place, too. You know, what's going on? Inevitably, in those conversations, someone at one of the servers, one of the cooks would say, dude, man, you got the best job in the world. You get to write about food and you get paid to do it. Um, and they would say, can you is this your only job? And without thinking, I'd kind of laugh and go, no, I can barely pay for what I'm ordering. Um, well, what else do you do? And I would say, without thinking, well, I'm a pastor. And that was the end of every single conversation with restaurant folks instantly. I mean, it was like cockroaches when you turn on a light. They just scattered. Um, and it took probably multiple conversations over the course of a year or two for that to finally dawn on me. Oh, wait a minute. Anytime I mention I'm a pastor, end of the conversation. And I was at a bar in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, listen to it at a concert, sitting at a table of industry folks. Um, and this would have been in, in that 2006 timeframe, probably still. Um, and I can tell that the next question is going to be, what else do you do? And I remember thinking, I don't want this conversation to end. And if I tell them I'm a pastor, it's the end of the conversation. Uh, and yep, next question was, what do you do? And instead of saying I was a pastor, I was a little more vague. I said, oh, I'm in public relations. <laughs> and no one left the table. They're like, oh, okay. Uh, what about, what about, you know, uh, Michael D's, you know, have you had the, the spinach and feta omelet at Michael D's? Uh, that's one of my, you know, no break 
in the conversation. And so I drove home that night uh, back to Spokane thinking about that. And I felt like I had to kind of figure out what was going on. So I called a woman who was a student at Whitworth University who I knew was a Christian and I knew was a server. And I just asked her a simple question. I said, Annie, why is it that anytime I mention I'm a pastor, no one will talk to me? Not a moment's hesitation. She said, Kevin, as a server, I hate Christians. I hate Christians. They're the most demanding customers that ever walk into the restaurant. They're the stingiest tippers that ever sit at my table. They take the tables for too long, often to study the Bible. I hate Christians. We beg not to work on Sundays. It's the worst shift of the week. And this is a woman who herself would consider herself a Christian. But as a server, that was the worst. And that was just like a light bulb for me of, oh, okay. <laughs> I can see why no one wants to talk to me <laughs> when I mention I'm a pastor. Um, but this kind of compelling need of something needs to be done, and the fact that the, the, the biggest non-starter is that I'm a pastor, was the origin of Big Table, where we started thinking, how do we care for folks in this industry? And the idea was, why not around a table where, um, where they would feel safe? Uh, the rules of engagement are simple. You sit down, you pick up your fork, and you start to eat, and you get to talk to folks while you're doing it. And so that became our kind of that image of a table which is pretty powerful and the hospitality of that table obviously the name big table implies that there's space for you at this table and so we started doing these dinners uh, where everyone at the table were folks in the industry uh, folks that would normally be serving or cooking other for others they were the guests for a night and then at the end of the night i'd say who do you know that's hurting that's awesome. I, I wanted to make sure that I did kind of go just a touch deeper on the the phrase and the name of the organization, Big Table. Everyone has a seat. So the ministry, essentially, the nonprofit focus is to bring in those that typically do the serving. Yep. And then they are now being served and kind of honored and respected and getting a great meal. Yeah. And and as you said, uh, cared for. That is there more you want to add to that? The big table. Well, it's literally a big table. Um, awesome. In each city, we build a table um, that seats 48 people. It's 45 wow. feet long. It's this cool experience. It functions like an underground restaurant, pops up at this place or that place. And that night, one of the best chefs from the region or from somewhere else that we have a relationship with comes in and cooks a six, seven course dinner. That's the chef, we say, go for it have so much fun for these folks then maybe that one of whom's a fry cook at mcdonald's and someone who's a hostess at Downriver grill and so just all these folks they get to be guests they get to bring a friend no charge no cost there's no pitch to for for money there's just a you get to be a guest for a night and um oh by the way what we do day in and day out when we're not doing these dinners is we care for folks in this industry. Do you know someone who's hurting that we can care for? Okay. So let's walk through that. Somebody raises their hand and says, yeah, my coworker uh, is working in the kitchen. I just happen to know that she is really struggling paying her rent or her electricity bill or whatever. What, what kind of happens after that conversation? 
uh, takes place? Well, what could um, happen? It, initially, it was, you know, I would just kind of run with it when it was literally just me. <laughs> as as Big Table has grown, we've had to create a system to make sure we're not dropping any balls. So what we would do now is say, well, go to our website and fill out a referral, um, which is, um, and I got to say more about the referral piece because that's just so, I think, so revolutionary in some ways. But they would say, here's who I am. I'm Sally. My, my, my friend Jill is struggling. Give us a little bit of a way to reach out to them and reach out to the person in need. A little bit about that. Our care coordinator, the person on Big Table staff who's going to be the person caring for that, would, would call the person who put in the referral. So call Sally and say, tell me, is there anything else I should know before I reach out to Jill? And is it okay if I use your name? Uh, just so that she knows this is a legit thing rather than some scam. <laughs> um, typically, Sally would go, absolutely. In fact, I already mentioned that you guys might be calling. Um, and so we would text her or call uh, Jill and just say, we hear you're going through a tough time. Um, leave it pretty general like that. Um, could we buy you a cup of coffee and find out if there's something we can do? Because that's what we do. We care for folks in our industry. Um, typically that person goes, okay. Um, and so we would meet them in a coffee shop and just say, tell me your story. Um, because of that referral from Sally, we're not saying show us pay stubs, fill out this form. None of the normal screening systems that you would have to have to legitimize a need. We know through a relationship that this is an actual need and someone in trouble. So, for the person that's struggling, they're not, they don't feel like it, they get to retain their dignity. They're just having a conversation with someone who said, I might be able to help. Um, oh, gosh, so you need help paying that phone bill. We can take care of that. In fact, let's do that right now. We can pay that right now. But, so the experience. Yeah, a, let me jump in on that. I, I think that's, a, I'm sorry to cut you off because you had a good sure, rhythm. It's sure. just. To me, that, that is something that I think the uh, charity world, regardless uh, faith or non-faith, uh, has been missing is meeting the immediate need. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a good friend uh, over here. He runs New Horizon Ministries. It's a young right. adult uh, yeah. housing and job training and all that. And one of the biggest th- uh, things that he can do for somebody is if somebody says, I just need a plane ticket to get out of Seattle, for example, to go to uh, my uncle said I could stay with him in Dallas. Yep. Uh, I just need a ticket. I can't afford to buy the airplane ticket. And that would be, okay, let's do it right now. Mm-hmm. Or I can't, I need a bus pass. I can't get to, to the company that said they would hire me. I can't get there because I don't have a car. Well, mm-hmm. let's get you an Orca card if you're on this side of the state. Right, exactly. Uh, right away. You know, it's however much. Anyway, I love that. Let's do it right now. Immediate need, meet it immediately. Love it. Yeah. Sorry. Often that care coordinator would say, what's the thing that's the biggest weight on you right now? And maybe the referral came in is that they're about to get evicted. Um, And so going into that conversation, you'd assume that help with rent is the most immediate need. But when you ask them that question and you give them kind of agency to kind of be a part of the conversation about what's the biggest need, they might say something different. They might say, in some cases, we've said, well, actually, it's it's my cell bill because um, I signed a lease that I never could have afforded. So even if you help me with rent right now, 
I'm going to get evicted next month. Um, and I've already arranged, I've got a friend I can sleep on his couch until I get kind of my feet squared away. But if my cell phone gets turned off, the second job that I've applied for, they're not going to be able to reach me and I'm going to not get that job. And, and the kid, my kids who are with my ex, <laughs> but I have to pick them up from school three days a week, they won't be able to reach me. So what I really need help with is my cell phone. Great. Let's take care of that. And then let's maybe help you with a deposit on the new place that you need to get into when, in a couple months. Um, so it's that them, it's giving them dignity and value through a relationship. Um, love, love it. Um, let me, let me ask it from a, from a different perspective, uh, the relationship with the restaurant itself, what, um, how, how does that work? I mean, here, here's their employee. Uh, yep. and, and look, I've been in restaurants, right? Sometimes they don't barely know who works for them that week. Uh, and then there are, you know, their names and whatnot, but then there's some that obviously do, uh, you know, try really hard to care about their staff. Uh, mm -hmm. but what is, what is the relationship like between big table or some of your, you know, sort of sponsors or friends of big table yep. and specific restaurants? How does that work? Um, ideally it's awesome <laughs> because we're going to that owner or that manager and saying, this is not a pay to play model. Um, if you see someone, if anyone on your staff is struggling, refer them to us. Um, if you have to fire someone, uh, but you care about them because they bust the policy, you can refer them to big table. There's no strings attached to the way we care for people. And so the, our, our first point of reference for a restaurant is we're a resource for you. Um, if we care for your people and you decide that that's valuable care, and you want to support us monthly, you know, shoot, that means we can care for more people. But there's never a point where you can't refer someone for big table care um, if, because uh, our job is to care for the industry. So um, typically those relationships with restaurants are, they're saying to us, what's the catch? This is way too good to be true. Uh, why would you want to help my people unless you're wanting to get something out of it. Right. Um, and we'll say to the best of our ability, one of our core values is that we care with no strings attached. Um, I love that. Speaking of no strings attached, one of the fun things that you've been doing for years is called the uh, unexpected 20. Did yeah. I get that phrase right? You did. T tell us about the genesis of that mm -hmm. and, and kind of what it means and why it's important. I know as a former server, I would have thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and actually it goes exactly back to your comment about no strings attached. As we said, how do we begin to engage people to see what's going on in this industry without any strings attached? Because normally we all attach strings to things <laughs> and it's almost just the way we're wired. But the idea is we've got these little, it's actually called a tip envelope is what it's titled. If you order them online, it's a little tiny envelope that, uh, if you fold a three uh, twenty dollar bill, you know, into thirds, slides right into that little envelope, and we call it an unexpected twenty because we ask people to put a twenty dollar bill into that envelope, have it in their purse or their wallet, and when they're in a restaurant, when they're in a hotel, look for a person that's invisible to everyone else, um, and then as they're leaving, just walk up to them and hand it to them and say, "This isn't a tip. This is a gift. Make sure you look inside." 
And when they open that up, there's 20 bucks. It's not 20 bucks that they did a single thing for. It's just that someone saw them, walked up to them and handed it to them. Um, on the back, it says, if you want to figure out what this is, here's the website. If you want to give one of your own, you know, you can do it through the website. Um, it's, um, I can't tell you in an industry that's built on survival by tips, <laughs> the difference between a tip and a gift is like this huge gap. It's like this person saw me as opposed to, I just did a good job at my job. Um, and um, one of my favorite ways to use the unexpected 20s is to, through the course of a meal, um, get to know the server's name without being either creepy or patronizing. <laughs> and then at the end, as I'm, uh, when the bill comes, say, hey, look, I'm going to leave you a great tip. And usually that then means I need to leave them a, 20, a tip of 20 bucks or more. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also going to give you this envelope. Um, would you give this to the person in the restaurant who's having the toughest day or is having the hardest week? And it usually takes a second or two or five for that server to figure out what you're, what you're handing them. Sometimes they have to look inside. Oh, there's a $20 bill in there. The second they figure out that you've just given that to them so that they can give it to someone else that they know, almost always their eyes light up and they go, I know exactly who deserves this or who needs this right now. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was in a restaurant in Nashville, did that. The guy goes, oh, we got two single moms working this shift. This is going to one of them right away. Amazing. Um, so in that instance, that unexpected 20, you're giving it. They also get to give it. So two people get to experience that um, and care for somebody else. It's just amazing. I love that. Uh, just for the sake of time, I wanted to kind of get a couple more questions in. Sure. Um, so Big Tables, uh, founded in Spokane, yep. you have a, a presence in other cities now, right? Uh, where are the other cities and, and how does that work? And then how would somebody get involved if they wanted to, to support sure. the cause and, and that sort of thing? Sure. Well, we've got a team, an active care team in San Diego and then in Nashville. And uh, the board just voted that our next city will be Colorado Springs. So oh, early wow. 2023, we'll launch in Colorado Springs. But already kind of lined up behind that are cities all across the country saying, please come here. So if you're interested in getting involved at Big Table, reach out to us, email us through the website. Um, and maybe that moves the city that you're in up the list if we're not already there. <laughs> but... Um, even if we're not in your city, we've got a whole list of things that we call the how to care while eating and sleeping guide, which oh, is awesome. things that anyone can do wherever they're at, whether they're traveling or at home, to begin to care for the industry with the highest concentration of need in the nation. So I'll, I'll all of that's that. available at the website. And that's big. Including, yep, go ahead. Including the unexpected 20s and a... a we can send you envelopes or there's actually even a, like a template that you can print out on your printer at home and, and say, fold it and glue it yourself. Fold it, glue it, <laughs> give it out. I love it. Big dash table.com, right? Yep. Big dash table.com. Uh, I love it. Now I didn't hear you say Seattle. You didn't. 
Um, we For six years, we had a team on the ground in Seattle. Um, and at the end of 2021, we had to close it. Um, hardest decision I think I've ever had to make um, in my, you know, 15 years of doing this. Um, but um, we simply couldn't support the team with local funding after six years and $2.2 million worth of care in the Seattle area. Um, we were looking at a 2020 deficit of, of $120,000. Um, actually, it was $220,000 was going to be uh, how much we were going to not be able to raise in Seattle to support our Seattle team. So um, that bums me out. It bums me out there, too. There's a, I mean, I know you've made this trip across the state probably a zillion times, right? Yeah. Eating at all kinds of great restaurants over here and cared for a lot of people. And I know you have a yeah. really strong network yeah. of food industry folks over here. Yeah. I'd love to to continue that dialogue offline to see how that could ever be regalvanized again. Yeah. Um, but uh, we'll do that uh, on another time. But uh, Spokane, San Diego, Nashville, and then Colorado Springs is up next. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah. Colorado Springs, San Antonio is a, 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 a kind of a, a – there's some real kind of energy and momentum in San Antonio, St. Louis, um, Fort Lauderdale. Wow. Uh, I've got a call right after this one with someone in – Hawaii that says, please come to Hawaii. So I love that. I, I, you know, they're, you know, <laughs> that could be kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sorry. I got to head out to Hawaii just to work on you know, some stuff. Sure. Uh, well, I wanna, uh, just cause I want people to get to know you personally a little bit, Kevin, and thank you for, for sharing all this in your heart. I mean, it's, uh, sure. it's amazing. Uh, I think one of the reasons I exist on the earth is to bring, uh, try to bring relationships between the faith and business community and, uh, also, even civic-minded folks, you know, I'm tired of all the castle building independently. Uh, there's a lot of smart people that have good hearts uh, that, you know, working together, we can do some good things in our in our world and not waste a bunch of time and money. And uh, I love what you're doing, especially with my experience in the restaurant world. Um, and it's a, it's a huge, huge need. But let's get to know Kevin Finch personally. Sure. So I got a couple of fun questions. Uh, you're scrolling through your cable TV lineup. Uh, you're just trying to see what's on TV. A movie pops up that you're partway through. Which, what's a movie or two that you always stop for and watch at least a few minutes because you just because you love it so much? Um, a cheesy, um, a cheesy um, B uh, kung fu movie called The Last Dragon. Is that Bruce Lee? No, it's not Bruce Lee. Oh, there's <laughs> it's another Bruce dragon. Leroy. <laughs> uh, okay, got it. It's totally a cheesy movie uh, <laughs> from the '80s that I love. Um, more recently, Ready Player One, uh, I, I think, is a lot of fun, and that's usually one of. Oh, I'd like to see that again. Uh, yeah. Just about anything James Bond, of course, too. Would, would, you'll, you'll always stop for for 007. Right. I like that. Oh, that's fun. Uh, what's the last book you read or are reading? Um, a book by Dorothy Sayers. Uh, English author. Uh, uh, it's called Have His Carcass. It's a murder mystery. Uh, main character is a guy by the name of Lord Peter Whimsey. Uh, and That's a great name. They're, they're awesome. Um, she was kind of the same, a contemporary of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and uh, she's a, a gifted writer. Uh, so. do, you, do you tend to read fiction uh, more than nonfiction, or is it a little good mix? I, I have... As many uh, nonfiction books as fiction books on uh, my shelf, 
but I plod through nonfiction books and I buzz through fiction books because I love stories. Love that. That's good. Uh, what's a favorite quote or a word to live by um, that you that's uh, important to you or always you've drawn uh, inspiration from? Do you have something? <laughs> from uh, most recently, it's um, kind of a cautionary one. To a guy with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, and I think that sometimes if we've only got one tool in the tool belt, we force every situation to have the same response. We, we, are, we only have one response. And I think life is complex enough that you need more than just a hammer. Wow, that's excellent. Where'd you find that one? I have no idea where I first heard that. But it stuck. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, one one more question. What's a skill that maybe you don't currently have that you sometimes wish you had possessed? Um, leading a a nonprofit that is growing, I wish um, I I was better at reading spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> you you took the English lit class instead of the accounting class. That's school. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can write a paragraph. Uh, easy. Uh, <laughs> call them the numbers, man. Uh, Somebody come a, in and uh, and translate for me. Too. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Too. Well, Kevin, I appreciate you taking a few minutes uh, to sure. to join me. Uh, and we'll we'll share this information out with uh, as many people as we can. I, I just think it's fantastic stuff. Um, and I'd love to, next time I'm in town uh, later in the summer, I'd love to see if we can get a cup of coffee and catch up in person again. Well, I think uh, I think we need a like a, a Reuben at O'Doherty's. That'd be excellent. Hooligan and Hannigan. A hooligan and Hannigan, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, my son that's at Gonzaga, he uh, worked in the kitchen this past year there, and that was his... He moved up from the fry uh, frying pit or whatever they call it there to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to making the the Reuben sandwiches. So he's uh, gotten pretty good at it. All right. Well, shoot, I want one of his. All right. Sound me too, actually. Yeah. All right, sir. Well, thanks very much for taking time, and uh, we'll we'll be in touch real soon. Thank you. Perfect. Cheers. You bet. Bye. Bye. And that wraps up another edition of Irish Mike's podcast. Thank you to Kevin Finch and Big Table for joining us. And if you're interested in finding out more information about Big Table, the ministry, the nonprofit, and how you can get involved in area restaurants and the needs of the largest employer in the world, go ahead to the show notes at irishmikesmith.com forward slash podcast dash Big Table. Or certainly you can go to www.bigtable.com. As always, thank you for your support.